Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com. to another episode of Lords of Limited with your hosts Ben Warney and Ethan Sachs. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney and joining me on the line this week is the rest of Team Lords of Limited for the win, Ethan Sachs and our third teammate Matthew Betsol. Hey guys, how you doing? Good man, how are you? Doing pretty well. It was a blast meeting you at GP Columbus, I've got to say. Yeah, we had a really, really fun time this weekend. Have you fully recovered? You were in shock that I was streaming last night. I have fully recovered. I made it home to my apartment and I did not move out of my lazy boy recliner until I went to bed. I like managed to turn my cell phone on to catch your stream and I saw that you were streaming again today. I don't know how you did it, but I'm, I'm finally back in shape. I went to school today like a big boy and, you know, getting back in the groove. Nice. Matt, how about you? Have you recovered fully? Uh, I did a draft last night and got another <laughs> trophy, so I guess so. Feeling pretty good. Um, all right, so we have a lot, a lot, a lot to get through today. We're going to talk about our experience this weekend. We're talk a little bit about Team Seals. We're going to talk a little bit about drafting the format. But before we get into all that, we got to talk about our patrons. That's right. We do have a Patreon page for the podcast, patreon.com slash Lords of Limited, where you as a listener can give back to the show if you so choose. Uh, we have some sweet perks for you. And the base level is the Discord. I got to say, the Lords of Limited Discord is not stopping. Can't stop, won't stop. Just like so many notifications every day, so many people posting deck lists trying to figure out this format. It's really fascinating. So you get access to that for the base level of donating to the podcast. Have some other sweet perks for you. Get access to our show notes. Get access to a little pre-show recording to, uh, as Matt said earlier, see how the sausage is made. Uh, so you can get all that at patreon.com. And of course, one of the things that we do is shout out new patrons each week. So we want to welcome Eric, Brentley, Elizabeth, Jonathan and Daniel, thank you so much. We really, really appreciate your support. Yeah, cannot say thank you enough. One of the coolest parts about GP Columbus was just people coming up and saying they like the podcast. It was awesome. So thank you, thank you, thank you for supporting us and what we do. Yeah, people trouncing us and saying they <laughs> listen to the podcast. That yeah, was, that was that. really fun. <laughs> so let's just get get right into it. How was the weekend for everyone? What what do we do, Matt? Why don't you, you kick off? We we had some sweet extracurriculars this weekend. Yeah, so on Friday night, we were lucky enough to have one of the members of the community, Dr. Stupid, make dinner for us. Yeah. Uh, Ethan and I went over, and he made scratch-made pizza, and it was amazing. Mm -hmm. And then after that, we went to a barcade mm -hmm. where we got to play DDR with Sam Eilenfeld mm -hmm. and some of the other people from Discord, and it was gas. Yeah. And then on Saturday, we got together with a bunch of people from the streaming community to do karaoke. Yeah. So that was also really sweet. Yeah, Ben, I, I can't, I don't think I will ever be able to show anyone, but I do have video evidence of you singing karaoke with Louis Scott Vargas. No, you will not be showing that to anyone ever. <laughs> Someone asked today on stream, they were like, how much, how much to share that video in Discord? I was like, no, 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 Ben would kill me. Well, I've already posted a video of <laughs> Ethan playing DDR on Twitter. So. Yeah, but I have I have no shame, so you can just post as much embarrassing stuff about me as you want. 
Yeah, it was really awesome getting to meet everyone who came up and said they liked the show. Someone delivered, someone messaged us in Discord and was like, hey, I got cookies for you guys. We were like, wait, what, really? So just really blown away by the support of the community of Magic in general, but also for our streams and our podcast. It was awesome. So what was, that was like a lot of the fun stuff, and now we have to get into the maybe not so fun stuff, which is that, spoiler alert, we did not do well in the GP. We uh, won three dropped and then enjoyed ourselves in other magical ways, doing some some side events. But uh, let's talk about a little bit of our prep for the, the, the sealed event this week, Ben. Yeah, so we, to start out, since we were separated by distance, obviously you two were together, but I'm in southern Indiana, uh, we made a spreadsheet to try to come to a consensus on what we thought some of the best cards were. Uh, so we had three tiers of always try to play, uh, sometimes play if the circumstances are correct, or if you're building certain types of decks, and the bottom tier was hope to never put these cards in your deck ever. So we had all the cards sorted into those categories, and you know when we had disagreements, we talked about them and eventually came to a consensus. Um, and we'll share that spreadsheet in the show notes for everyone to have access to in case you've got your own Team GP coming up for Dominaria. There's another one in about a month, right? Yeah, GPDC is going to be uh, the same format, Team Sealed, so people are going to be playing this again. Uh, and I think it's really important, you know, especially because it was... The release weekend, we had 75 minutes to build our pools, which is a lot of time, um, but we did use almost all of our time, and that is with us all being on the same page going into building our decks of, like, these are cards we're happy with, these are archetypes we're happy with, and I think getting as much of that out of the way as a team beforehand really just helps you get conversations out of the way that don't have to happen on the day that you're building your pools. So part of what we did was we wanted to build a lot of practice seal pools, for those of you who haven't played Team Sealed, it is a completely different animal from regular Sealed. The decks have a tendency to play out like very good draft decks, and your worst cards are often still better than your like 19th or 20th best playable in your regular draft decks. So Ethan and I went to our local game store and used some people's pre-release pools to put together some Team Sealeds, and we swapped. And so we were able to get a high density of input from a bunch of teams. Meanwhile, Ben in Indiana was building Team Sealed decks, sending photos and sending them to us, and we were all exchanging deck lists so we could get a good idea of where we all were, what kind of archetypes might be shaping up before we even really got into the draft environment. I think that was super helpful. Yeah, one of the cool things about that, well, for us at least, was we got to swap pools and see how other people would build. But then it was also something great that you were doing, Ben, was you would take a photo of your deck, but also send us a photo of, like, notable cards in this color pair that I'm not playing so that we could have an idea of, like, what if we made these swaps? Like, how would this look? Or, like, these are the, the cards that we're leaving on the sidelines. That was something that I kept, like coming back to of like what are the powerful things that we're not putting in our decks and so like no noticing not only what you're including in your decks but what you're not including i think can give you an idea of what the power level that your uh decks are going to shape up to be will be yeah one of the other things was the list of colors cards you made you want to you want to talk about that at all yeah i thought it might be good to like shortcut or like think about what color pairs we're trying to do and then anticipate the colorless cards that we were going to open and figure out where they slotted in best now this format is like pretty historic based so like blue white and black are going to be the places that you're going to put the bulk of your artifacts but things like skittering surveyor the three mana one two that goes and finds a basic land or icy manipulator the four mana artifact that you can pay one to tap down an artifact creature or land like these are just very strong cards that could theoretically go in any deck and so i think if you get to deck building day and you're arguing about well no this deck wants surveyor or this deck wants icy manipulator or heaven forbid you open a karn and then it's like well which deck gets this great colorless planeswalker like you probably want to think about that beforehand so that those conversations don't have to happen in the 75 or 60 minutes that you have to build yeah, and then one of the other things I think we did that was super helpful was when I got in late Friday night, uh, I had to take my band to a band contest on Friday, so I got in about 11 p.m. We did a team sealed build that Friday night just to talk about things like how we wanted to do it, how we wanted to sort the colors, and then like which sort of decks we would try to build. And once we'd built those decks, like how we'd rotate to like try to make improvements to the decks and things like that, just having those conversations ahead of time of this is our method for how we're going to build the decks, I think was really helpful to maximize our time. And we discussed, or I discussed a little bit with Sam Eilenfeld when we met him at the Barcade, and I ran into Dustin Stern at the, the convention center on Friday, and 
everyone seemed to be in a pretty general consensus that if you could build uh, a few certain decks you wanted to, and those being black-green sapperlings, blue-red wizards, and then some form of white assertive deck, probably hoping to be white-blue historic if you can, and those guys seem to be in agreement with that. So I, I felt pretty confident that we like knew what we were hoping to do going into the day, and we had really like gotten on the same page. That one build that we did that Friday night went super smoothly. It was like really, really easy to like discuss things and like move things around. And then we got to the main event, and what happened, Matt? So our main event pool was pretty rough. We had a lot of rares that were pulling us in different directions. We had three different triple-colored rares, and we had a number of build-arounds, some of which are the kind of trappy build-arounds that you don't actually want to build around, some of which required a lot of deck-building finesse. We had one in particular that was a legendary sorcery, and I think we perhaps worked a little too hard to play that card. We were also a little short on the good uncommons. We had maybe three or four across three or four different colors. And looking at our commons even, we had zero to one and very rarely two copies of anything that we felt was going to be in our top three commons in any color. So it was a tricky build. Yeah, really, really tough build. I don't think I quite realized until we were done. I was like, oh, wait, our pool is terrible. Like, no mythic rares. We had a number of unplayable rares uh, and then just like a bunch of stuff that like really didn't work. Our white was super shallow and white is generally one of the deepest colors, I think, uh, at least in the experience of the pools that we looked at. It was a it was a tough road. I think also just the fact that we didn't have depth of the strongest commons was really what put the nail in the coffin. But I mean, it was still super fun to play the play the rounds with you guys. Uh, yeah, we had close games. I mean, and even despite the fact that our pool was rough, I think we built pretty well and we had really close games. We were we were one and three. Right. And so all three of our round losses came down to match three game three. I mean, it, it could have gone a very different way. Yeah, for sure. That's absolutely true. But enough, enough about sealed. Who cares about sealed? Let's talk about draft, baby. What's the trophy leaderboard looking like for people? It is looking real rough for me. You had a tough start. I had a brutal week. <laughs> uh, so I have done 14 drafts. Uh, I have four trophies. My overall record is 21 and 18 for a 54% win rate with a few qualifiers. I also have a 3-0 from a side event <laughs> at the GP. And if you count that, I feel like I've really turned it around. I started abysmally, like way under 50%. Uh, so my last six drafts, I am... 16 and 2 in with four trophies if you count that one from the gp side event so if you can imagine what it was like at the start it was just like one two oh two oh two one two one two one two i i've not started that format up that poorly ever i don't think in my drafting career uh how about you guys i have 24 drafts under my belt with nine trophies for a record of 49 and 20 for a 71 percent win rate but there's a caveat there, which is that uh, on Wednesday, my win rate was 85%. So that was good. Good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's, it's coming down. It'll, it'll probably settle where I usually settle around 67. How about you, Matt? So I've got about 12 drafts in. I have three trophies and a 27 and 9 record for a 75% win rate. Look at you. So I've been coming in pretty hot. I actually have zero O2s, no one twos. So they're all two ones and three O's. That's really impressive. I'm excited to talk about draft with you guys because I think all three of us are approaching the format differently, though it feels like it might be starting to like come together in a, a cohesive manner, but we're only a week deep. Ben, do you have a roundtable for us to maybe start the conversation off? I do. Oh, baby. So pack one, pick one for our roundtable. You see the following cards as options. Academy Journey Mage, this is four and a blue for the 3-2 Human Wizard. It costs one less to cast if you control a wizard, and when it enters the battlefield, return target creature and opponent controls to its owner's hand. There's a Blessed Light, four and a white for an instant. Exile target creature or enchantment. There is Shauna Sisei's Legacy, that's green-white for the 0-0, zero, zero. can't be the target of abilities your opponents control, and gets plus one, plus one for each creature you control. Two-Headed Giant is the rare. Two red-red for a 4-4. Four, four. Whenever it attacks, flip two coins. If both coins come up heads, Two-Headed Giant gains double strike until end of turn. If both coins come up tails, it gets menace until end of turn. And there's also Wizard's Lightning in the pack. Two and a red for the instant that costs two less to cast if you control a wizard and deals three damage to any target. Matt, as our guest, why don't you lead us off with your thoughts about this pack? 
So in general, Wizards Lightning is an excellent card, and I have had the most success. And two out of my three trophies have been blue red wizards. Mm. This is a, a great payoff, and in modern sets, honestly, three damage for three mana is about right. Yeah, and it feels a little bit like I'm cheating when I pay one red mana to deal three damage to any target. So I'm high on Wizards Lightning here. I also like Academy Journey Mage and. It's a little bit below Wizards Lightning for me, although it's in contention because, honestly, red is pretty shallow. Yeah, I agree. I think red's shallow, but not shallow enough that I wouldn't grab Wizards Lightning here. I think it's a pretty clear pick one here. Agreed. That was what I settled on as well. Moving on to pack one, pick two, you see the following cards as options. Pack gets quite a bit worse in a hurry, and this has been a theme for a lot of my drafts. It feels like we've had different experiences in the format a little bit. Mm -hmm. So Ancient Animus, one in a green for an instant, put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature you control if it's legendary, then it fights target creature and opponent controls. Divest, single black for a sorcery, target player reveals their hand, you choose an artifact or creature card from it, that player discards that card. Cavende, Pride Ephemera, three and a white for the 2-2 Human Knight with Double Strike. Creatures you control with First Strike have Double Strike. And Vidalian Arcanist, one and a blue for the 1-3 Merfolk Wizard, taps to add colors, and you can only spend that mana to cast Instants or Sorceries. Pretty rough pack. So I'm thinking probably Quende or Vidalian Arcanist. Uh, I'm a little bit lower than a lot of people on Ancient Animus, just because not even all green decks necessarily want it, although it is better than Pounce was in some formats Pounce has been in. And ultimately, I think I'm going to lean towards the Vidalian Arcanist. A lot of decks in this format want to be playing 18 lands. You want to be able to ramp into your spells. And it's got Wizard Subtype, which is relevant. It's also a 1-3, which is just a great blocker. There are a ton of 2-mana two 2-2s two in this format. And if your opponent plays one, it's going to be a little embarrassing when you untap and play this on turn 2. Yeah, I really like Arcanist. I was talking to Matt before the show about how I feel like this card is going to be kind of like Ixali's Diviner was in like Triple Ixalan when people were trying to draft more controlling decks. Like it was like started off like this card always wheels. And now I feel like as people catch on, uh, Vidalian Arcanist is going to start getting picked a little higher and a little higher. I think it, it's certainly not something I'm trying to second pick. So it's embarrassing. I do believe it's between that and the Ancient Animus for me. But pairing this with Wizard's Lightning uh, and maybe trying to go blue-red sounds like a good plan to me. That was my thought as well, and I also grabbed the Arcanist. Moving on to pack one, pick three. You see the following cards as options. Gideon's Reproach, one and a white for the instant. Uh, Gideon's Reproach deals four damage to target attacking or blocking creature. Mesa Unicorn, one and a white for a 2-2 lifelink. And that's pretty much it. There's a Yargle floating around, four and a black for the 9-3. Uh, there's an Artificer's Assistant as a, like the best blue card we, in the pack. We don't need to not talk about, we're just taking Gideon's approach, right? Like We don't need to talk about dwell on this pack. You get no. a good, uh, good white removal spell. So now we've got three cards of three different colors. Uh, we've got a Wizard's Lightning, an Arcanist, and a Reproach. Moving on to pick four, you see the following cards as options. There's Fungal Infection, single black for an instant. Target creature gets minus one, minus one until end of turn. Create a 1-1 one, one green sapling creature token. And there's a Wind Grace Acolyte, four and a black for the 3-2 flyer. When it enters the battlefield, put the top three cards of your library into your graveyard and you gain three life. There's also Llanowar Envoy, two and a green for the 3-2 Elf Scout uh, that can filter mana for one and a green. That's about it. There's not really any playable white or blue cards that are particularly standing out. Yeah. Matt, what do you like here? So... For me, there are three cards in contention. I actually have one in contention that Ben didn't mention. Okay. So there's also a Blood Tallow Candle. Mm -hmm. And Blood Tallow Candle is a one-mana artifact, and you pay six tap, sacrifice it. It's the target creature gets minus five, minus five until end of turn. Fungal Infection is probably the card that in a vacuum I would like to have most in my deck, but it is also the fourth color in fourth picks. And so while it could be a signal that black is open, I may be leaning a little bit towards just taking something that is probably 75% to make any of my decks and has a little bit of synergy if I end up in something that goes with historic. So I may actually lean towards a blood tallow candle here, realizing that I'm losing a lot of power level in order to stay open. Yeah, this is a really tough pick because I do think fungal infection, as you said, is, is best. But I agree about taking a colorless card here. I think I would probably just lean on grabbing the fungal infection. I haven't quite found to be short on playables in this format, as I know Ben has found and as I know other people in our Discord have found. So I'm not super nervous about grabbing a fourth color here, but I am aware that it is a cost and a risk that I'm taking. 
So I ended up taking the fungal infection here, uh, and here here is my reasoning. This is my current draft philosophy for Dominaria. In pack one, I'm starting by taking the best cards, I think, out of the packs that I can, because the best cards are just so much better than the other cards. Like, I think fungal infection is enough better of a card than blood tallow candle. I've seen blood tallow candles wheel, and I don't think fungal infection is supposed to wheel, mm-hmm. but I'm trying to just get as many premium cards as i can and then try to sort the color thing out later because i think you really get rewarded for figuring out what's open yeah that makes total sense to me i'm I'm happy to grab the fungal infection here i'm just a little nervous about like trying to find my lane with it moving on to pack one pick five you see the following cards as options there's another blood tallow candle there's a dark bargain three and a black for the instant look at the top three cards of your library put two of them into your hand and the other into your graveyard dark bargain deals two damage to you there's an invoke the divine two and a white for the instant destroy target artifact or enchantment you gain four life and there's a sentinel of the pearl trident four and a blue for the three three flash merfolk soldier and when it enters the battlefield you may exile target historic permanent you control if you do return that card to the battlefield under its owner's control at the beginning of the next end step so for me i am probably leaning towards the sentinel overall i'm pretty disappointed by the way that this pack is starting to shape up I am not really excited to be taking any of these cards fifth pick, and I'm kind of worrying about what I'm supposed to be drafting. And sometimes this may happen in the format where you're not seeing any of the really best cards, and you're going to be forced to take something suboptimal and try to find your lane. Sentinel of Pearl Trident, while not a card I'm usually happy to have one copy of, has some pretty sweet combos, and maybe I'm just cutting the best blue card of the pack and seeing if I can't try to find some kind of blue lane. Sentinel of Pearl Trident is a bad card, I think. Like, it's fine if I've got a few sagas already, but the five drop slot, especially because Cloud Reader Sphinx is, that's the four and a blue, three, four flyer uh, at common that scries two and it ETBs, that five drop slot gets clogged pretty fast, and unless you've got good stuff to blink with Sentinel, I don't think there's really room for it in your deck. I think I would probably lean towards Dark Bargain here and be maybe trying to go some sort of blue-black control deck. Like, we've already got the Arcanist, which can cast the Dark Bargain a turn cheaper or for mana cheaper. I've got the Fungal Infection as a good removal spell. I don't know, I could also be like Black-White stuff with Gideon's Reproach. Um, I think I'd rather take a black card to pair with the Infection here. Yeah, those were the two cards I was trying to decide between, and I ended up settling on the Sentinel, but I could certainly see Dark Bargain there as well. So moving on to pack one, pick six, you see the following cards as options. There's an Academy Drake, two and a blue for the 2-2 Flyer with Kicker 4, and if it was kicked, it enters the battlefield with two plus one plus one counters on it. There's a Pardic Wanderer, six mana for the 5-5 Trample. There's a Rampaging Cyclops, three and a red for the 4-4, and it gets minus two, minus zero, as long as there are two or more creatures blocking it. There's Slin Voda, the Rising Deep, six blue-blue for an 8-8 with Kicker, one and a blue. If you pay the Kicker cost for 10 total mana when it enters the battlefield, if it was kicked, return all creatures to their owner's hand except for Merfolk, Krakens, Leviathans, Octopi, and Serpents. And Talarian Scholar, two and a blue for the 2-3 Human Wizard. I had a chance to play with Slin Voda today in a blue-green ramp deck, and I kicked it many times. It's busted if you can kick it. I thought this card was nearly unplayable, and I am, I'm a believer now. Upheaval's back, and it's attached to an 8-8. I think my favorite part of those dreams was when you got to keep your 1-3 in play, because it just is randomly a merfolk. Yeah, Voldalian Arcanist stays in play. You get to just crack in for one. I'm taking Partic Wanderer out of this pack because it's colorless, and... Though there is like a like glut of blue cards here, like we're finally seeing some cards I'm like happy to play, like Academy Drake and even Talarian Scholar, which over the weekend we were just sort of like three mana two threes are really good in this format, which we will talk about later in the episode. But I'm gonna take the opportunity to take a colorless card that I'm think is gonna make my deck most of the time, and still try and figure out what uh, what lane I want to be in. What about you, Matt? I am also on Partic Wanderer here. I have played Talarian Scholar to some good success. But not having seen any red that wants to pull me into a wizard stack, the 2-3 is fine, but the Partic Wanderer is usually something I'm happy to play with. The fact that it's an artifact is really relevant. It's often the biggest thing on the battlefield if your opponent's not in big green. Mm -hmm. And the Trample is often relevant. So if you're playing against the Sapperlings deck, they can't just chump with their 1-1s. So I think it does just enough things, just well enough, that I'm going to be happy taking that and hoping I can find my lane after this, because I'm still not sure where I'm supposed to be. 
Yeah, I was also not sure where I was supposed to be. I hope to pick up Partic Wander a little later than this. Um, and I was hoping maybe this Telerian Scholar was a signal for wizards and that the packs had just been weak. And I felt like I was seeing blue. And I think if I'm blue and I had the wizard's lightning, Telerian Scholar has gone up quite a bit for me over the last, you know, four or five days. Uh, and I was happy picking it here, but I could certainly see Partic Wander. Academy Drake has gone down for me a little bit. Yeah, me too. I think outside of like blue green. I think it's good in blue black too, because sometimes you just like need something to play on turn three. And then oftentimes it can be like your finisher drop on, on seven mana. Um, but yeah, I think it's not good in blue white and definitely not good in wizards. Moving on to pack one, pick seven, you see the following cards as options. There's another fungal infection, uh, and there's a Valduk keeper of the flame, two and a red for the three, two human shaman legendary. And at the beginning of combat on your turn, if it's for each aura or equipment attached to it, uh, you create a three, one red elemental creature token with trample and haste. And there's also a memorial to folly, the tapped land black memorial that you can sacrifice for two and a black, uh, to return target creature from your graveyard to your hand. So for me, I think I'm leaning towards fungal infection. I don't really like Valduk. I think a lot of times it's a three mana three two, and I'm not really happy with a vanilla three two in the format. And the ability can be good, but I've found that type of deck to be a bit of a trap. And especially if I had taken a couple of the cards that Ethan had taken, I would be really happy with this fungal infection. And I only have one red card so far in my picks, and that's Wizard's Lightning. And so I'm thinking, okay, maybe red's not open. This is a late fungal infection to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy to play two, maybe even three copies of that card. And the first one is amazing. So I think I'm on fungal infection here. Yeah, me too. I'm going to take the infection. Yeah, I was torn between the infection and the Valduk. The tiebreaker for me was at this point in my draft, I had wizard one wizard's lightning and one fungal infection. And I really, really wanted to try to play that wizard's lightning. I think the upside's way higher there. So I settled on Valduk. There's random legendary matter stuff and i've i've learned at this point not to put bad equipment in my deck for valduk i have learned that lesson the hard way um (laughs) so i was mostly looking this is like a three mana three two legendary yeah that that makes sense yeah i think this is a good place to round out the draft but i just wanted to run through this draft because i feel like i've had a lot of drafts that have started like this with underpowered cards and it feels like every time i tune into someone's stream they've just got like the nuts sapperlings deck or the nuts wizards deck and i i know there are other people out there that are seeing these drafts that have lower powered cards. And I just wanted to, wanted to run you guys through it. Yeah, for sure. Well, that sounds like a great springboard into like what sort of turned the corner for you, what your like initial impressions of the format were and how you maybe were able to improve on that win rate. Yeah. I think we should just talk. This format's hard to draft, right? Yes, I agree. Yeah. It's just, just tough. Uh, so I think there's just a few things that we want to like, just lay out there in case you're struggling. You're not alone. So I think there's one of the first things we need to talk about is the gap between the best commons and uncommons and the next tier of like commons is gigantic. Um, And that can lead to a few things. It can make signals really hard to read in pack one if there are weak packs like we just saw in that draft. Like it took a while to feel out that blue might be open for me. Like when that happens, when I'm in those drafts with weak packs, it leads to self-doubt about whether or not I'm in the right colors. And sometimes I switch around too much and I've ended up light on playables before because I've just been hopping around trying to find where I'm like, quote unquote, supposed to be. And I think one of the the things that was important for me to wrap my brain around is I think a lot of your edges in the format might come from maximizing that second tier of commons and uncommons. Like the busted cards are always going to be great, but if you can figure out how to make Ether Glider, like the three mana two one flying unblockable, very good. Or if you can try to make a card like Befuddle, like two and a blue for the instant target creature gets minus four, minus zero, draw a card. If you can figure out how to make those cards good, that's really when your deck starts to hum. Like if you can find synergies for those second tier of cards. Yeah, I think another thing that is different about this format than maybe the formats we've come off of, like Rivals of Ixalan wasn't a super fast format, but there were Merfolk decks that could steamroll you. There were Vampire decks that could steamroll you. Um, So I think the, like, I don't know what the average number of turns per game was, but it was probably on the lower side, even with, you know, some of the City's Blessings decks sort of going for the long game. But I think games are generally going longer. So you're, you're playing games of magic where you have to make a lot of decisions. And I think that leads to a lot of opportunities for you to outplay your opponents as well as get outplayed and it, a lot of sub games happen like uh, a couple last weekend when matt and i were playing sealed we played a game that was entirely re- revolved around us playing around our opponent's seal away so we had shalai in play which is the legend that gives all of your other creatures hexproof and we just like 
couldn't ever attack with that into their open mana. And they revealed the seal away at the end of the game and felt like champions. I think I, I played a game earlier today that revolved around me playing around my opponent's syncopate, which is the X and a blue counter target spell unless its controller plays X and the card gets exiled if it's countered that way. I think you get a lot of these like little sub games or little opportunities to be like, oh, you're doing this, so I'm going to counter that by doing X, you know? Um, I think that really is not something we've maybe had in limited in a few sets. I agree as well. I just played a game where syncopate was like the key card and I had to play around my opponent's syncopate for an entire game. Yeah. So there are a lot of different ways to draft this format and to do it successfully. So ultimately, you have to find what works for you. I think Ethan and Ben and I have all found that what's working for us is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, a lot different. If I were to show you all 12 of my draft decks, I would almost guarantee you that neither Ethan nor Ben has anything that looks like the majority of them. Yeah, for sure. So what has been working for you specifically? So I have been really focusing on, like you said, maximizing those second tier commons and uncommons and really finding synergies. The most important thing for me, if I can do it, is starting about three picks into the draft. Every time I am looking at a couple of cards in consideration, I'm thinking, one, does this or how does this synergize with the cards I've already taken? And two, if I take this, is this going to leave me flexible to try to work with other cards to really maximize the power level of this card? So one good example of that is Relic Runner. So Relic Runner is one in a blue for a 2-1 that whenever you cast a historic spell, Relic Runner can't be blocked until end of turn. And so that card has a few synergy pieces, and they are typically going to focus in the Esper colors, so blue, white, and black. And I'm going to be looking for some legends. I'm going to be prioritizing artifacts a little more highly than I otherwise would. And I'm also going to be really happy if I pick up Tetsuko and maybe a Jousting Lance. A Jousting Lance is great with that because it gives a trigger on the front side and it turns into a four power first striker. So even if you can't make it unblockable, it's still going to be really difficult to interact with. Ben, how, how do you feel about Relic Runner these days? I'm not super high on Relic Runner. So I've played that blue-white historic tempo deck uh, several times. I feel like, you know, in our in Rivals of Ixalan, we sort of came out with an avoiding the aggro trap episode. My current feeling about blue-white is that it's a bit of a trap in this format, uh, the blue-white historic deck, unless you've got a plan for the late game. Like if, you're, if your plan is solely like Relic Runner is the one in a blue 2-1 unblockable if your opponent casts, a, if you cast a historic spell that turn, Diavenant Trappers, like two and a white for the three, two. If you cast a historic spell, you get to tap something down. If your plan is like those cards trying to win you the game, I think you're in for a bit of a bumpy ride because you have to draw like the right sequence of cards. You have to draw those cards early and then have your historic cards. It's really difficult to beat life gain with that deck. And I think sometimes that deck just folds to itself or a certain card or two on the other side of the battlefield. I think it's uh, a glass cannon, as it were, to borrow from like League of Legends or games like that. I think that my feelings about that is somewhere in the middle, is that I think that deck, when it's at its best, because I played a pretty good, played against a pretty good blue-white deck earlier today, and I think the thing that pushes that deck over the top is maybe not going all in on that, like, two-drop, two-one thing, but that's part of your synergies, because you need early plays if you're some sort of an uh, assertive deck, but that you're backed up with some Avon Sentries and some Cloud Reader Sphinxes and some Sarah Angels on the top. So your 3-2 Flyers, your 3-4 Flyers, your 4-4 Flyers with Vigilance. I think that's the way that deck performs and not to like rely so heavily on like drawing that good mix of historic triggers and cards that care about you casting those historic spells, uh, but more so having that be a sub-theme that, that allows you to push through some early damage and maybe push through that late damage uh, when you need to just like tap something with a trapper or get in the last two or four points with a relic runner, that sort of thing. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I think what you're talking about with Cloud Reader Sphinxes and Sarah Angels, like having a plan for the late game with yeah. just that stuff early, rather than the early stuff being your sole plan. I think that's where I was getting myself into trouble with those blue white decks. So you've got a sort of like manifesto here in our show notes about like things that help you turn around the format. So you want to run us through a few of these points yeah sure so i, I like i said i have had a rough start to the format my <laughs> win rate's still only 54 percent, and i've done super well in my last like five drafts online at three three o's and two two ones and it's still my win rate's still abysmal so here are some things that have worked for me and maybe this will help you and maybe you'll find your own stuff but 
The first thing I think is that blocking is very good, and I think you should try to draft decks if you can, where you are interested in blocking and that block well. Uh, specifically, I think three mana two threes are very good at blocking. If you get a two four or something or a four four, those also block insanely well. And I think the reason that I want to be blocking is there's so many ways to blow your opponent out in combat. I think there's lots of good combat tricks like Befuddle, the two and a blue for the instant, give target creature minus four minus zero draw card, uh, your own adamant wills, your instant speed removal. You can leverage that stuff because your opponent's going to be forced to try to use combat tricks or like rough equipment or things like that. And I think just being interested in blocking allows you to leverage better cards than your opponent is playing. So can we talk about why blocking is great? I think one of the reasons that blocking is so good is that there aren't good two drops. Like, I feel like we've been talking, like, that's a, a key for aggressive decks is to have good one and two drops in limited, and they just don't really exist. And there's a bunch of one threes and two threes to brick wall them. I mean, Matt made a list of, uh, like, the good two drops at common and uncommon in, in the colors, and, like, there just aren't that many. What, what does that list look like? So... It's actually interesting. A lot of the best two drops in most colors, you want to cast for six mana. Right. There's the, like, Caligo Skin Witch, which is the one and a black one three that you can kick for three and a black to mind rot your opponent. And there's the Gitu Chronicler, which is run one and a red for the one three that you can kick for three and a red to buy back a spell from your graveyard. But, like, those are things you really want to be casting much later than turn two. For sure. And that's why I think they're the best quote-unquote two drops and as I mentioned earlier, with Vidalian Arcanist, if your opponent plays a Grizzly Bear on turn two, you're just going to embarrass them with your modal card. It's one of the reasons I think we're all so low. And I think the community at large this sort of feels like something that everyone feels strongly about, that red is the worst of the five colors in this format. And that's one, because the commons are so shallow, but two, because it's got these like random bears. There's like the Warlord that's a one in a red for a 2-2 two, two that puts a count lore counter on your sagas when it attacks, which is never relevant, or like there's a goblin that is a one in a red for a 2-2 two, two that gets plus one plus one and menace when you kick a spell. But again, that bonus isn't going to happen until much later. There are just all of these like very niche 2-2s. Two and so you get to play these modal 1-3s in your deck that you're hoping to cast on turn six. But if your opponent happens to go, I play Relic Runner on turn two, you go, great, here's a 1-3. So you have to have a historic trigger or your opponent for some reason plays Saprling migration, which is one in a green to make the two one one saprlings, you go, great, here's a one three to block it. So you have this like modal card at common that allows you to sort of brick wall or or sort of speed bump the the quote unquote aggro decks that people may be trying to play. Um, and then you also have something that's a two drop that's not dead when you draw it late game. Yeah, I agree completely. And I think even I like two threes, three mana two threes even better than the one threes. I, I'm on board with those modal one threes being great as well at two drops. I think the three mana two threes also trade with your opponent's three twos, which those one threes get a little bit embarrassed by once your opponent starts hitting their aggressive three drops. For sure. Yeah, that's true. Another thing that I'm pretty firmly on is that I really want to take the most powerful cards I see in whatever cards in pack one, because I think the top 15 to 20% of cards are just like way better than the next group of cards in the format. And I'm really, really, really trying to find my lane. And I think some of my O2s and one twos were like tilt drafts like I was losing and then I was just like clinging to like the one good card I got and ignoring some other good cards like thinking that I really needed to play that one good card so I'm really trying to be flexible and find the open lane to try to get rewarded hopefully by getting past good cards if I identify the open color pairs yeah I think that's so true you like early on you messaged me you were like this format is just like modern cube like in Modern Cube, there were like 40 or 50 cards that were better than everything else by a significant margin. And that's sort of how it feels here. Like, we did uh, a draft together over the weekend online, and like, we drafted a like medium white blue deck, which I feel like was where we were supposed to be, but we just didn't see any good uncommons. Like, we didn't get the, the Inbolus's Clutches, which is the mind control effect of the format, or we didn't get a Sarah Angel. Like, we needed those like top tier uncommons or commons to really like push the deck into. Uh, a league where it can really compete. So I think that's that's so true that like even the the, the commons themselves have a pretty stark drop off from like the top three or four or in Red's case one or two that it has. The other thing I'm trying to do is to not put quote unquote bad or low impact cards in my deck with the plan of attacking. So I think I was falling into the trap of some of those red two mana two twos, even some of the white two mana two twos, and just like trying to put equipment on them or trying to use combat tricks. I just think blocking is so good in the format. You're not going to be able to like consistently leverage attacking with the plan of equipment or combat tricks often enough to try to 3-0. So I'm really on 
two threes that block well. Howling Golem's a card that has overperformed for me a ton. It's the three mana two three that when it attacks or blocks, you draw a card. If you've got better cards in your deck than your opponent, you want to be drawing cards like at an equal rate because it helps you hit your land drops and then you're going to be able to cast your more powerful cards on time and find your more powerful cards. Yeah, I think people get caught up with that card being like, well, they're drawing cards, but it's it's a symmetrical effect. And I think there are other scenarios where like if you're if you're able to double spell because you're refilling your hand or if you're in a color combination that doesn't have inherent card advantage, like if you're not in blue and you can't be casting divinations, this is also a good way to like get you more cards, get you to see more lands, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Where are you at on number of lands in the format, gentlemen? I am on 17 or 18. I have played 18 lands a lot. And part of that is because a lot of my two drops are actually six drops. (laughs) And I want to be able to sometimes double spell with one of my spells being a six drop. And another enabler for that are the memorials. Four of the five memorials are absolutely playable. Some of them literally say draw cards on them. Mm -hmm. And so they're lands early when you need them. And they're gas later when you need that. And yeah. so I think that just lends itself to an 18 land mana base. I was playing a black green deck last week at some point, and you were in chat, and you were like, you have so many places to put mana. And it didn't even look like it at the time. Like, I think I just had like a slime foot and maybe one of the like four mana two threes that you could pay to to sack a creature draw a card. Like, I had a lot of like little tiny ways to, to use mana, but it didn't seem like enough of, of a place to sink mana. And I also had like maybe a couple mana dorks. But I just think so many more decks, even if you have mana dorks, even if you have uh, some skittering surveyors, the the three mana one twos that fetch up lands, like I think you just want to be on more lands because there are places to put mana with kicker and memorial lands and some mana sink creatures. And a lot of your most powerful cards in this format cost five mana. Yeah. So sometimes you just can't build a deck with less than four or five drops. Yeah. And you just want to hit all your first five land drops and beyond Mm -hmm. to six, seven, eight, sometimes even to ten so you can kick a Josu Vess or a Fight with Fire. And you can't really double spell until you get up to eight mana. Yeah. Which sounds absurd. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Ben, what do you think? I am firmly in the 18 land camp. That was one of my biggest turnarounds also. Like, I'd been trying to put 17 in decks, I think, maybe with Atlanta World for two floating around. But I'm, I'm just firmly on 18 lands, I think, for, like, the vast majority of decks, and maybe 17 if you've got two or three Atlanta War Elves or something. Mm-hmm. But having ways to draw cards, to hit your land drops is just insanely good drawing cards helps you mitigate flood is also like it gives you just places to put mana gives you more cards to cast and these decks that want to block hitting your land drops and like matt said the best cards cost five and six mana and when you get to cast your five and six mana bomb on time it's so much better than if you get stuck on four lands like if my opponent gets stuck on four lands i just feel like i can't lose the game if i'm hitting my land drops in this format yeah that makes total sense to me The other thing that's been really key, and this was like, I think we identified this pretty early on, but just having ways to interact with your opponent's cards is pretty awesome. Bounce has overperformed. Blink of an Eye is very good. Uh, The one in a blue return target non-land permanent to its owner's hand, and then you can kick it for one in a blue to draw a card. That's great. There's lots of good removal, instant speed removal. And I think combat tricks I'm really starting to try to leverage as the defender uh, to try to blow my opponents out that are maybe attacking too aggressively. That's really interesting because I feel like usually when combat tricks are good, that's because it's an aggressive set or like you're using your combat trick to punish your opponent for double blocking or something. Can you talk about why the combat tricks are good on defense? Oftentimes I'm lining up double blocks on my opponent's attacker that's good and then maybe they'll use a pump spell to try to two for one me. And if I've got a pump spell in response to that, I two for one them. Uh, that's the situation I've found myself in a lot when I'm the defender. Like they're making a, an aggressive attack, I double block, they use a removal spell or, or an instant speed combat trick, and then I can play my own removal spell or instant speed combat trick in response to two for one my opponent. Like Befuddle specifically is great as the defender when you're double blocking. You just feel like you can never get blown out when you double block. And you're almost certainly getting a two for one because Befuddle replaces yeah. itself. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And heaven forbid, like if your opponent, like I had just today, my double blocked and my opponent went to use the one in a red plus three plus three and trample and I cast Befuddle, I got I two for one them and I drew my card off Befuddle and got a three for one off a card that's like a D. Yeah. Oh, format broken. Here we go. <laughs> okay. 
Uh, another thing that's really been working for me is taking Skittering Surveyor and Grow from the Ashes super highly. I really started to like identify that these slow decks were good when you and I, you were looking at my draft decks earlier on in the format when I was losing and I just could not figure out why. And you were like, there's a divination in this pack. Why didn't you take it? Divination's great. And I hadn't really like decided that divination was great yet. Um, and now I'm firmly on that that camp and grow from the ashes as well. So there's no good mana fixing. Uh, and we had a pretty hard stance on Navigator's Compass last week that I think we might need to walk back a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we'll talk about that in a second. But Skittering Surveyor is the three mana one, two that searches up a basic. It's a super high pick. It's like a B minus B in the format. There's great cards you want to splash and it helps you hit land drops. Very good. Grow from the Ashes, two and a green, uh, lets you search up a basic and put it onto the battlefield untap. If you kick it for two, you get to go get two lands and put them on the battlefield untap. So sometimes on five mana, you can kick your Grow from the Ashes and then play a two drop, which feels insanely good. And just the ability to fix and splash freely is super, super strong. I would say that I think people are still not recognizing that there's not a lot of good fixing. And so I think Skittering Surveyor is a high pick. I think you want to think about it as I'm taking the Surveyor because it just does enough as a card. A three mana one, two that finds a land is already replacing itself. And then that one, two, maybe a triggered historic, maybe you sack it to something that gives you a little bonus. Maybe it just chump blocks, whatever. But that that is something you're taking first before you're taking something to splash, just because especially if you're not in green, it's going to be really hard to splash some fun, uncommon multicolored legend that you want to play if you don't get the fixing and you're going to have to build a tough mana base which is sometimes okay but i think it should be much more the exception than the rule uh and i see a lot of people in chat when i'm streaming tell me to like oh take that card why aren't we taking that it's just like i don't want fixing and i don't want my mana base to be that bad because i don't want to to stumble in this format i absolutely agree I think to the point of Navigator's Compass, yes, I have played that. I like decided to make a YouTube video for the first time in months uh, last week. And of course, that was the deck where I was like, I think I should be playing Navigator's Compass in this deck, weirdly enough, because I had enough things that cared about Historic and I was trying to splash and I didn't have the surveyors to back it up. And it was pretty okay. I think like it can be good. I think it just, again, should really be the, the exception, the exception and not the rule. And I think one of the ways to make it less terrible is if you've got card draw in your deck. Like if you've got divinations or weight of memory, is it like the three blue blue draw three, mm-hmm. somebody mills three, those help make that less of a disadvantage. Yeah. Matt, where are you at on terms of like two color decks or three color decks, that kind of thing? I have prioritized staying two colors where I can. Part of my game plan in general is to have a clean curve and if my opponent is trying three and four color nonsense, that's some win percentage I can pick up. Mm-hmm. And I'm taking Skittering Surveyors relatively highly. They do, like you said, just enough things. If your opponent is playing some X1s, and there aren't a lot of good ones, but it trades or it can double block. It triggers Historic. So I actively want it in my two color decks. Yeah. So taking those highly enough, if I find something like a slime foot if I'm in green something else or black and something else it enables that but I'm not looking to do it mm-hmm. I think those those scary mana bases are just they result in mulligans and mulligans are really bad and limited and they feel particularly punishing in this format and I don't know why I think it's because you want to hit your land drops so like oftentimes if you mulligan it's harder to hit your third fourth fifth land drops yeah without and if you are then you're probably flooding or you don't have a lot of action in your hand It's a weird format because I wish I could be on the draw, but I need the defensive speed of being on the play Mm -hmm. so that I don't get behind and I'm making my land drops before my opponent. That's the key, I think, like making your land drops before your opponent. That's interesting. So I've had a few drafts where I've gone like just black, white, good stuff because black and white seems so deep to me because they're like the removal is so good and they've got like good synergies with legendary and historic and like some card draw with the soul salvage, which is two and a black uh, for the sorcery to grab two creatures from your graveyard and put them into your hand. It just feels like there's a lot of cool, good value going on at, at black and white. But those decks have not, like, worked out great for me, and I often find that I'm in this awkward situation because a lot of that removal is in the two-drop slot. That like, do you want to, like, blow that on their two-drop, or, like, do you want to be on the draw so that then your two-drop removal is lining up with their three-drop kind of thing? Um, But we're just firmly on, like, be on the play, be 18 lands, hit your land drops before your opponents. That sounds like the way to do it. That's what I've been having success with. Yeah, that's been my plan as well. I am very infrequently unhappy to be on the play. 
Yeah, that makes sense to me. I think maybe a little bit of, of the like the sealed format being slow and everyone sort of feeling consensus, except for Michael Jacobs, that you want to be on the draw in sealed or like maybe not always on the draw, but like usually with uh, with with most decks that you found because you weren't getting good aggressive decks. I and mean, if we're not getting good aggressive decks in draft, you're certainly not getting them in sealed. Anyway, do we want to talk about some specific cards that have maybe moved up for us since figuring out this format? Yeah, I feel like a lot of changing my evaluation of some of these cards has really helped me out my last five or six drafts. I just don't see... There's just one card on this list I'm not seeing. <laughs> yeah, we, before we get started on this list, we need to... Uh, we had a discussion about Llanowar Elves. That was a good prompt there. Uh, <laughs> I, we, we had some points awarded last week, and I need to award like five to ten points to Ethan for having Llanowar Elves and sticking with it as his top common, and I am a dummy for not having it as my top common getting it you know we talked about hitting your land drops is great ahead of your opponent hitting your land drops and being ahead of the curve because you cast land or elves is even better it doesn't matter if it comes down on turn three turn four being a mana ahead of your opponent is super super good uh land or elves is great you are great i am so sorry <laughs> <laughs> so many points to you thank you thank you thank you it was really satisfying to get a text from ben on our like testing text chain and like midway through last week we were just like jeez lanor elves is really good like how, how do you beat turn one lanor elves i was like we got him finally got him don't have to argue about this anymore the answer for the record is turn one fungal infection right that's true that is the better feeling so you go boom, kill that get a one one all right so that that's it that's my my rubbins now let's talk <laughs> about the other cards what do you got for us so Adam at Will is first up on this list. So this is one and a white for the plus two plus two and your creature gains indestructible. I think this blanking or removal spell is super real and I think it's like similar to dive down in the format and is very, very good as a combat trick on defense, offense, and just blanking or removal spell from your opponent. It's very versatile and does a lot for two mana. Matt, where are you at on disenchant effects in this format? So there's like Broken Bonds, which is the one on a green sorcery to destroy an artifact or enchantment, and you can put an extra land in play. And Invoke the Divine, which is two and a white for the instant, blow up an artifact or enchantment, and you gain four life. Those are really our, are the, the only options. But do we typically don't main deck these effects in limited? Are we, are we doing that here? I've been happy to main deck one copy in either green or white, with a preference being in white because the instant speed is relevant the one mana hurts a little and there are definitely some awkward mana sequencing turns but instant speed is great yeah i also really like gaining four life incidentally uh off of that i think i'm on main decking one of these as well because there's just enough going around with the historic triggers and like some of the best uncommons like on sarah's wings or in bolus's clutches are enchantments like there's just enough really powerful things and then enough incidental things that you really aren't going to get i think punished or have this card stranded in your hand that much in this format i also think you don't want to sleep on blessed light exiling an enchantment and fiery intervention being a shatter effect it destroys target artifact as the second mode those come up and they actually make the cards a little bit better as a result yeah absolutely befuddle we've already talked about quite a bit uh that's the two and a blue target creature gets minus four minus oh until end of turn you draw a card that's super good leveraging it as a combat trick on defense i cannot say it enough if you you don't need to pick it highly because nobody else is interested in it but it does some serious work when you're blocking cold water snapper this is the five and a blue for the four five turtle with hex proof this card is really kind of brutal to get off the battlefield you have to jump through some hoops and this is often the biggest thing uh, on the ground at least so if you're trying to attack on the ground and your opponent plays this you're gonna need like some sort of edict effect like the eldest reborn that that uncommon saga or you're gonna need to play like the like matt did in our team draft this weekend he had that ridiculous rare haphazard bombardment which has too much text but it's the the five and a red thing that you put four like counters on things and then you kill something at random that has a counter on it at the end of turn so that doesn't target so you get to get the snapper off the battlefield that way but there's not a lot of ways to interact with hexproof and then god forbid they suit it up with an arcane flight which is the single blue the like tiny one with the wind plus one plus one and flying aura or on Sarah's Wings, which is the steroid Squire's Devotion in this format. Like, there's just a lot of ways that this card is great, and not a lot of ways for you to be able to interact with it profitably. I think the biggest knock against it is that it costs six mana. Like, and there's just other things that you often can get at six, or those modal spells that you want to cast on six, but it's still really strong. Thank God it costs six mana, because I think we're all pretty tired of hexproof flying creatures. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I would agree with that. 
So Divination is great. Yeah. I am playing one to two copies very happily in a lot of my decks. This is not only another reason to be 18 lands, but it's also another payoff for being 18 lands. It's great because you can gas up. A lot of decks really rely on one-for-one removal, especially in blue. You could be blue-red, leaning heavily on removal, blue-black, leaning heavily on removal, or just pulling ahead of cards even if you're just trading creatures away. Divination only goes up one card, but that's big. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a a format of, like, two-for-ones. I think a lot of times these decks are just like, you're just trying to like one for one, one for one, and then get ahead with two for ones like Divination or Soul Salvage or Dark Bargain, all of those like obvious two for one cards. We have a whole episode about the value of a card and what two for one means, uh, and I think you want to look for that and mine this set for as much of that as you can. Absolutely agree. Tolarian Scholar is now on this list, as well as every other 2-3. 2-3s are my current jam in this format. They block so well. Tolarian Scholar being a wizard... Uh, at the start of the format, I would have told you I would have never hoped to put Tolarian Scholar in my deck, and now I just think it's like a C minus, probably a C in a Wizards deck. Just does serious work if you're looking to block. You have Divest on this list. This is the like Thoughtseize of the format, single black to look at target player's hand and choose an artifact or creature card from it, and they discard it. Can you talk to me about that? Because I'm still on not main decking this. Yeah, I think I'm fine to main one copy of this, especially in a control deck. Uh, I've found playing it fairly early in the game, just getting to see my opponent's hand and craft a game plan. First of all, you know, you might get a pesky creature out of the way that might be difficult to interact with or a bomb, like, and then you're in great shape, but you're rarely missing, I think. And the ability to see your opponent's hand and craft a game plan around that is super huge in this format, because I think a lot of win percentage in this format comes from playing good magic and outplaying your opponent. And I think that's one of the reasons that my win rate is was so bad in the beginning because I was so frustrated with the draft process that I was just like playing super sloppy and playing quick and like not caring and feeling sorry for myself. And once I like just buckled down and started to play games of magic, my win rate also started to go up. Uh, imagine that. But I think Divest letting you craft a game plan around seeing your opponent's hand is very real. There's a, an episode of this really great podcast called Make Your Own Luck. Um, that I think would be good when you're having that like downward spiral. <laughs> I know. I know, man. I, I need to go listen. A <laughs> um, couple more things to round out this list of great cards. Uh, a couple green cards we talked about. Grow from the Ashes. That's the two and a green ramp spell. This is really strong just because of the lack of fixing that there is in this format, but also because it allows you to get to your powerful stuff at four mana, five mana, six mana sooner. I guess not four mana, but five mana, six mana, and seven mana if you're kicking some spells or have some expensive spells. That's really strong. And Mammoth Spider, again, it's a five drop, but this is four and a green for the three five spider with reach. This blocks everything. This also is a house against the blue-white skies deck. Um, It just brick walls a lot of things, and blocking is good in this format. If that's your takeaway, that's where we're at right now. Blocking is great. Absolutely agreed. Blocking is great in this format. And now... The moment that we know you all have been patiently awaiting for, that Dominaria achievement list. Yeah, so I cannot, this has been kind of become kind of a big thing. So many people have like tweeted at us or like sent us emails about their ideas. Everyone asked me in Twitch chat, like, when is the Dominaria achievement list coming out? So it's here, it's real, it's ready. Let's get to it. What's the first one, Ben? Number one, Tup Domed. Kill your opponent with a kicked fight with fire copied with the Marari Conjecture. Number two, gains, bro. Get your life total over 100 with Evra Halcyon Witness. Number three, hot pants. Control a champion of the flame that has at least plus six, plus six from enhancements. Number four, halar if you hear me. Deal lethal damage with that halar kicker trigger. Number five, a milli, a milli, a milli. Deck your opponent to win the game either with Daring Excavator or Homerid Explorer. Number six, can't touch this. Equip Helm of the Host to Shalai to give your entire board hexproof. Number seven, Taste the Rainbow. Cast spells with Wooberg with Joda Archmage Eternal. Number eight, Master of Your Domain. Win the game with Lich's Mastery on the battlefield with either negative life or zero cards in your library. Bonus points for both. Number nine, Mishra's Factory. Control eight or more Mishra's self-replicators. Number ten, Legend, wait for it, Dairy. Cast Kamal's Druidic Vow and put at least four legendary permanents onto the battlefield. Number 11, O Captain, my Captain. Control Ashana Sisei's legacy that is 1515 or larger. 
Number 12. There can be only one. Deal lethal damage with Yargle, Glutton of Urborg, attacking alone. Bonus points for greatest amount of power. Number 13. Permageddon. Exile your opponent's graveyard with Phyrexian scriptures after blowing up all their lands with Fall of Thran. Number 14, Under the Radar. Attack with eight unblockable creatures with Tetsuko Umazawa Fugitive. And number 15, Fun Guys. Have your Sapperling's power plus toughness buffed by three separate effects. So for people who don't know, this achievement list, you take a screenshot when you get one of these, tag us on Twitter, send us an email with that screenshot. If you unlock five or more, you'll be entered into a giveaway for a full draft set of Dominaria. And for each one of these achievements ticked off by the community as a whole, that is one hour of a stream that Ben and I will do together. So up to 15 hour stream. Yeah, looking forward to seeing these achievements rolling in. And make sure when you submit those screenshots to us on Twitter that you hashtag them with D-O-M Treasure Hunt. All right, I think that's going to do it for this week. Matt, thank you so much for joining us, not only for this weekend, but for this week's episode. Um, For people who don't know you, where can they find you on Twitch and Twitter or anywhere else? Yeah, so I stream mostly limited, as you would expect, on mostly Sunday nights and Tuesday nights at twitch.tv slash stunlockftw. And you can also find me at StunlockFTW on Twitter. Awesome. If you want to get in touch with me or Ben, you can find us on Twitch. I'm at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter. And of course, you can contact us on Twitter at our podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. Places take you away. Some bring you together. Marathon does both. Marathon is Florida's family key with something for everyone. You'll find museums and wildlife refuges, wide open beaches, miles of warm, clear water, and the historic Seven Mile Bridge. For more about Marathon and the latest safety protocols, visit flakeys.com slash marathon.